following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Our passage tonight, in a passage we find the Lord's second response to Habakkuk's complaints. And in our passage, we see that the the bold prophet Habakkuk has already questioned God, but both how could God turn a blind eye to the injustices in the nation of Judah, and how could God possibly allow a vicious people like the Babylonians, to punish the people of God. Well, in this second uh, very dramatic dialogue that we find in this book, the Lord addresses issues of justice, and he assures his prophet and his people that he will certainly, that certainly the wicked will receive their just deserts. But even in this passage, hovering with justice in matters of judgment, there's an overshadowing of God's mercy for the people who belong to him, who will be spared the judgment that is sure to come on the condemned. This book, similar in some ways to the book of Job with its dramatic dialogues, where Job offers very painful inquiries before the Lord, we find something similar in that the response Habakkuk gets to his questions are not exactly satisfactory, typical answers to life's most perplexing questions. Rather, the prophet experiences a deeper consolation from experiencing the one who is beyond all mysteries. Truly, this passage points us to Christ, in whom are the true treasures of wisdom And knowledge, I invite you to follow with me as I read, as together we plumb the depths of God's pardoning grace and learn to live as his people under God's mercy. I pick pick up in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation waits an appointed time, It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave. And like death, is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and take captive all the people. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. 
because you have plundered many nations. The peoples who are left with plun- will plunder you, for you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his rest nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You applauded the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, and the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol, since a man has carved it? Or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trust in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to a lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. This is the word of the Lord, our God. Let us pray. O gracious God, we ask that you might illumine our hearts, press these truths deep within us, and may we rise up with songs of rejoicing, of joy and gladness in our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Perhaps the greatest power that a state can grant to its president or governor is the power to pardon convicted criminals. A sitting chief executive of any state literally holds the power of life and death over convicted criminals facing execution, a life sentence, or perhaps a lesser sentence. Granting such power to mere mortals should not be taken lightly. In the the award-winning film Schindler's List, Oscar Schindler approaches a German Nazi officer, officer, commanding officer of a camp, urging him to consider granting pardon to a Jewish servant who has fallen out of favor. Oscar Schindler goes on to tell a story of an ancient oriental emperor who demonstrated that true power was not found in the power to condemn, but in the power to pardon. Well, for a few moments, this Nazi officer considers this suggestion 
He imagines what it might be like to grant pardon to somebody for whom he held contempt. But in the end, he couldn't do it. He executed the Jewish servant anyway. Seems that the power of pardon proved too great for this very small man. Capricious tyrants of all kinds rise and fall to head up nations, governments, churches, schools, even households. The power to pardon and to grant forgiveness is seldom exercised with real justice and prudence. Only in the Lord Almighty do we find the one who exercises justice and mercy with perfect wisdom. We, like the flawed people in Habakkuk's day, and like the vicious Babylonians sent to punish them, we too, in our fallen condition, are woeful objects of wrath. But thankfully, in Christ, we are a people who live under the mercy of God. After the breathtaking vision of God that we see in chapter 2, Habakkuk goes on with humble rejoicing, offering up a prayer in the final chapter 3. Awestruck at the magnificence of God and acknowledging his rightful wrath, the meek prophet humbly pleads for God to remember mercy. Our text tonight offers us two promises and one exhortation for a people who would live under the mercy of God. Under God's mercy. We are called as a people to live by faith. Verse 4 is a startling, brilliant text that's quoted three times in the New Testament, providing a foundation for the gospel message and was an inspiring text that helped launch the Protestant Reformation from which we get the doctrine justified by faith alone. By, it's by faith that we are granted acceptance before God, even as the wicked are appointed for judgment. The Protestant Reformation, almost 500 years ago, was largely born from Dr. Martin Luther, understanding Habakkuk 2, verse 4, as quoted by Paul in Romans 1.17, to mean that God imputes an alien righteousness to the believer who trusts in his salvation. Prior to this era, the prevailing understanding of God's righteousness, emphasized in the book of Romans, was concerned with God's retributive justice against sinners. Martin Luther's breakthrough unleashed a current of refreshment that spread all across Europe and beyond. As born-again believers embrace the freedom we have to know the living God and to stand before him in the righteousness of Christ, appropriated by faith alone. In Galatians 3, verse 11, the apostle goes on to make the distinction between a righteousness that is appropriated by faith alone versus one that is attained by works of the law. 
Paul goes on to say that Christ delivered us, redeemed us from the curse of the law, that we too might inherit, inherit the blessings promised to our forefather Abraham, once again acquired and appropriated by faith. The author of Hebrews, in chapter 10, verse 38, offers his own commentary on Habakkuk 2, 4, emphasizing a persevering faith that does not shrink back in fear when faced with opposition. One contrast with those who stand before God. In this alien righteousness, acquired and attained by faith, a faith that perseveres, are those who are appointed for judgment. In verses 2 and 3 of Habakkuk chapter 2, the Lord commands the prophet to copy down this revelation, to set it upon a tablet and make the, plain, make the text plain so that a, a runner, a courier, could take it to those who stand guilty and in danger of judgment. The Lord assures his prophets and his people that though this message of judgment may tarry, indeed the day of reckoning is sure to come. The prime target of this message appears to be the king of Babylon, most likely King Nebuchadnezzar or perhaps his predecessor. The indictment in verses 4 and 5 is very clear. This king is puffed up with pride. His desires are foul, an abomination before the Lord. Verse 5 offers us a summary of the entire judgment oracle to come. Babylon's primary crime is greed, her king, her officials, all of her soldiers and all of her people are guilty of gathering conquered nations, taxing them, and forcing them to pay tribute to fill up the coffers of Babylon. They are compared to death that is never satisfied with its victims. These condemned peoples only recourse is repentance. Like the people of Nineveh in Jonah's day, they ought to seek pardon from the great judge. God himself, the king and judge of all the earth, exalts his power and his glory, exercising the privilege of pardoning sinners. One historian noted or perhaps many historians have noted, that Abraham Lincoln was known as a man who was merciful to pardon seekers and encouraged them to seek it. After Lincoln's, shortly after Lincoln's death, Attorney General James Speed had this to say of the former president. All who have the good fortune to know him well must feel and know that from his very nature, he was not only tempted but forced to strain his power of mercy. His love for mankind was so boundless, his charity so all-embracing, and his benevolence so sensitive that he sometimes was as ready to pardon the unrepentant as the sincerely penitent offender. On one occasion, Abraham Lincoln met with Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens in February of 1865 at the Hampton Roads Peace Conference. Now, this effort to end the fighting between the North and the South proved fruitless, but not 
Mr. Stevens' efforts to, to seek pardon for his nephew, John Stevens, a captured Southern Army lieutenant. The very next day, Lincoln ordered parole for this young lieutenant, who soon appeared before the president and was dismissed with a signed letter and photograph, sending him back to the South. There, John Stevens served for the few months remaining before General Lee surrendered in April of 1865. It's told that Alex, his uncle, Alexander Stevens, did not even see the signed letter of pardon before Lincoln was assassinated. This historian notes that Lincoln, a Christ-like figure, sacrificed, so to speak, for the sins of a nation, showed depth of tenderness and mercy, even upon those who declared war against him. Lincoln was a wise statesman who used the power of pardon to win over his enemies and to secure peace, unity, and healing for a nation. Well, Lincoln's desire to win over his enemies and to liberally grant the power of pardon illustrates the way that God pleads with his own enemies to turn from their rebellion, to cry out to him and plea for pardoning grace. And yet we know as generous as the mercy of God is, the Bible makes clear that opportunities for repentance draw to an end. The gap closes. Lincoln was once quoted saying, but the time may come when public duty shall demand that the door of mercy be closed. Lincoln exercised the power of pardon to advance the cause and purposes of a united nation. Our great God and King advances a kingdom of mercy by granting pardon to sinners. Yet even still, his justice must march alongside mercy in order to magnify his own great name on the earth. Well, as a people living under God's mercy, it's also our calling to make great the fame of God on earth. We see in this text of judgment that our God is a God of retribution and righteousness. Five woes structure the rest of chapter 2 of Habakkuk and are divided into two parts, each ending with a summary statement of God's greatness. The first three woes condemn the Babylonians, their lust for wealth, power, and violence, each fully deserving the Lord's retribution. In verses 6 through 8, we see a, a mocking voice of Babylonian, the Babylonian subjects whose debts are unbearable. The time will come when the tables are turned with poetic justice. Babylon will become a debtor to future oppressive world powers. Then in verses 9 through 11, the Lord pronounces woe upon these people who take pride in their positions of power. They had built up their realm with injustice. Smug and secure, high and exalted, unreachable, like an eagle's nest. The historian Herodotus 
writes that the wall around the city of Babylon had 100 gates. And the top of the wall was so wide that a driver could drive a four-horse chariot without being hindered. Nevertheless, this impenetrable fortress was taken by the Persians a century later who found a weakness in the city's water system. Lastly, in verses 12 to 13, this enemy of God's condemned for senseless bloodshed. The people whose labor had built up a kingdom would only serve as fuel for the fire of judgment and would completely consume them all. This great judgment passage of warning and woe is a timeless exhortation to every tyrant, to every little man with a Napoleonic ego to be warned and beware of the coming wrath. Regimes on the earth that persecute Christians, governments that hoard wealth and power, who show no mercy to the poor, who shed innocent blood, will only hold the reins of control until the time comes for them to be repaid their just compensation. Even great democratic powers in the Western world are not immune from judgment. They too are challenged in this passage to turn away from the false worship of money, false trust in technology, military and economic powers. We look back over history to see the demise of Egypt the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Romans, and we see that no kingdom will last. Only the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will endure forever. Christian, you and I are reminded that we, while in this world, are not of this world. The Word of God says that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Rather, we are called to love with a consuming passion, first and foremost, to love the righteousness of God and to magnify his great name on all of the earth. These three great woes are eclipsed with a stirring promise of verse 14, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of the Lord's glory advanced ahead of Joshua in Israel. Rahab told the spies that the city of Jericho was quaking in fear, that the hearts of the men had melted, that their courage was lost, all because of the great and mighty deeds that the Lord had done against the Egyptians. The glory of the knowledge of the Lord, spread through the victories of David, through the wisdom and the splendor of King Solomon, before whom the Queen of Sheba was left breathless. But all of these great acts of judgment and righteousness in the Old Testament pale to compare to the glory to be revealed in the Son, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. 
the son's glory was anticipated in the manner in which Moses would intercede for the people of Israel, facing a devastating destruction as the Lord threatened to completely wipe out the nation Israel for sinning with the idolatrous worship of the golden calf, Moses stood in the gap to plea for Yahweh's mercy. Moses understood that what was at stake was not just the welfare of the people, but the glory of God, the fame and reputation of Yahweh before the nations. You see, any capricious local deity could wipe out a people, but only Yahweh had the power of compassion and the power to pardon a people in rebellion. And so the Lord's wrath was assuaged, turned aside. The Lord chose to be merciful, waiting for an opportune time to fully vent his wrath on his people's sin. We know from the Old Testament and on into the New Testament that the Lord tarried long and hard until the time had fully come to send forth his son who would suffer punishment suffer God's wrath in our place. Jesus had this to say on the eve of his crucifixion. I have brought you, Father, glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And then prayed, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord was spread throughout the earth through Jesus, who lived and died and rose again so that the glory of the Lord would indeed cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Friends, let us fall upon our knees. Take refuge under the mercy of this great God. May we be his spokesmen to spread the good news that other sinners would flee the coming wrath and take lodging under the shadow of the cross. We've considered how these two promises, that the just will live by faith, and how the fame of God will spread throughout the earth, have been fulfilled in Jesus and are being fulfilled through the people of God even now until he returns. Now we consider the present reality of God's reign, and our calling to live faithfully before him. Two more woes remain in verses 15 through 19. The nation of Babylon will be chastened for shamefully disgracing her neighbors. Her shame will be heaped upon her own head as she will lie naked, having to drink the cup of the Lord's retribution. Verse 17 references the great building projects of Babylon, only made possible by raping the forest of Lebanon, leaving great devastation to animal and plant life. Then verses 18 and 19, the Lord goes on to rebuke the pagan people's idolatry. With great mockery, the Lord asks, why trust in something created? How can you get any guidance from something mute and breathless? With great contrast, the Lord is in his holy temple, reigning 
supreme. The Lord is on his throne. The Lord is on his throne. It's a phrase and notion that has brought comfort and security to God's people throughout trials and tribulations, throughout seasons of threats and anxieties, throughout all of the ages. By this, we learn to trust not in markets, in economic forecasts, in medical breakthroughs, in the turning of political tides. Our security is not found by by what we have laid up for retirement, by what we have installed on our windows, doors, and automobiles. No, our security is found in the fact that God reigns. Our God reigns, and we belong to him. Jesus has this to say about his people in John chapter 10. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Friend, if you are in Christ, you are a sheep who has been purchased and bought, and no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. One sad contrast, such is not the destiny of goats. The Lord says very clearly at the end of our passage, let all the earth be silent before him. We are reminded from Scripture that the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every mouth will be silenced before the majesty of our great God. But we find in this passage and others that silence also benefits the redeemed. I quote from Psalm 46, Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And Psalm 91 encourages us that he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. The psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73 Loathing, self-loathing, and self-pity. Envied the arrogant and the wicked until he entered into the sanctuary of the Lord and he understood the destiny of the wicked. The people of the earth shout loud in mockery, in condescension to God and to God's people. You and I are like spectators at a great sporting event suffering the defeat or the apparent defeat of a losing team, suffering and hearing the jeers of our opponents. And yet the time will come for the great reversal. When the upset of the ages declares us victors through Christ, we, the redeemed, at that time will shout and give praise with unending cheers of triumph. Until then, let us heed the words of Lamentations 3.26. It is good 
to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Jesus was like a lamb, silent before his accusers, refusing to defend himself before Pilate. Pontius Pilate had the power, the earthly power, to pardon Jesus. And yet our Lord denied him that power. The crowd demanded the murderer Barabbas in his place. Friends, you and I are guilty like Barabbas. We are the ones who stood condemned, but who have been pardoned, and for whom Jesus suffered and was punished in our place, getting what we deserved. Friends, at the cross, we see the glory of God's justice and his mercy on full display. At the cross is where justice and the holy wrath of God are satisfied forever. At the cross, we see a great mercy mushroom cloud that shields all of God's people from the coming day of judgment. People who have acquired assets over time, who find themselves vulnerable in a litigious culture, perhaps when they have a teen driver under the roof, sometimes take out what is called an umbrella insurance policy. These policies can be in upwards of a million dollars or more, and it's a catch-all insurance product to protect one's assets from any number of threats and lawsuits. Friends, you and I, who are in Christ, are under the umbrella of God's mercy. We are shielded from God's punitive and righteous indignation upon sinners. But friend, if you find yourself in the storm, if you are not enjoying the privileges and security of that umbrella of mercy, let me beg of you to ask the king for pardon, to cry out for his mercy. And for those of us with loved ones, with family and friends who have been yet to be brought under the umbrella, may you urge them, impress upon them this glorious truth that our God is merciful, that he delights to pardon sinners. May we with fresh zeal, with burden and compassion, go to those who are lost and needed to compel them to come in to find mercy under the Almighty's umbrella. For friends, our God is righteous. His judgment is just, and it is sure to come. And yet his mercy is more generous than you and I will ever know, though we search its heights and its depths for all eternity. To God be the glory. Let us pray. O Father of all mercies, of grace and compassion, we thank you that you pardon sinners, that you provide us protection from the coming wrath. Help us, O Lord, to be a people who live by faith, who live to make great your fame on the earth. And help us, O Lord, to be a faithful people that you might indeed receive praise, honor, and glory.
both now and forevermore. Amen.